Song of Songs, chapter 2. Now, if you're new with us, um, there, there are three people that kind of speak in this book. It's a, it's a collection of love poems. And it's kind of surprising that it made it into the Bible. It's not to anyone who really knows the Bible because God isn't this oppressive, repressive sort of person. But the popular opinion is that the Bible is just a bunch of thou shalt nots. And then you have a book kind of right in the middle of the wisdom section that leads, let him, kisses, let it, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth because your lovemaking is more delightful than being intoxicated with wine. Um, you kind of raise an eyebrow a little bit at, oh, this made it into the Bible, isn't that interesting? And, and, and when you know that for years and years and years, uh, we've tried to desexualize this book. And, and, um, and one of the things we just want to do is, it, it, it is a book that operates on many different levels. And one of those levels is uh, on the level of sexuality and lovemaking and romance and attraction, and that's a good thing. And so, um, agree or disagree, the goal isn't for you to agree with me. Uh, the goal really is to have conversations that aren't normally had in the faith community and to see what God does with that. Um, Song of Psalms, chapter 2. Remember, um, <laughs> we, we kind of um, interrupted the couple, kind of reminiscing. She's begging for raisins and apples because she's exhausted and... and <laughs> And then, and then the, the, in the middle of chapter two, uh, the poem shifts a little bit. And she says, she's still speaking, she says, verse eight, listen, my beloved, look, here he comes, leaping across the mountains, bounding over the hills. My beloved, she says, is like a gazelle or a young stag, which, you know, my wife has said of me, Never out loud, but I'm sure she said it. <laughs> Look, there he stands behind, and what's it say? Our wall. Now, the, our wall, our plural, is her family. So the image is, she is young, she's still living at home. Here comes the lover, he's excited to see her. Look, there he stands behind our wall, gazing through the windows, peering through the lattice. This isn't stalking, this is exciting. <laughs> My beloved spoke to me and said to me, Arise, my darling, my beautiful one, come with me. See, the winter is past, the rains are over and gone. Flowers appear on the earth. What season is this? Spring. The season of seeing has come. The cooing of doves is heard in our land. The fig tree forms its early fruit. The blossoming vines spread their fragrance. Arise, come, my darling, my beautiful one, come with me. So she's at home behind a wall, and he's inviting her out. He says to her, my dove in the clefts of the rock, in the hiding places on the mountainside, show me your face, let me hear your voice, for your voice is sweet and your face is lovely. Catch for us the foxes, the little foxes that ruin the vineyards, are vineyards that are in bloom. Now, what the image is, if, you know, because we're all familiar with vineyards, uh, before grapes appear, there are these little blossoms that appear on the vines. And foxes will come, and they'll, they'll eat these little blossoms, uh, preventing 
um, the vines from being fruitful. So a fox in the vineyard is a metaphor for something in the relationship that keeps it from bearing fruitful, keeps it from bearing fruit or being fruitful. Now, it raises, this passage raises an incredibly important theological conversation. What does the fox say? What does the fox say? What the fox say? So, now, look at anybody over 50. This is what the kids are into, okay? This is, this is a Norwegian comedy duo, Yelvis, that has a song pondering the great mystery of cats go meow and dogs go woof. But what does the fox say? So there it is. So, you're welcome. <laughs> now, foxes are this picture of problems in a relationship. Married folks, is this an accurate depiction? Yes. Are there problems? Yes. Do you magically turn into somebody new on your wedding day? No. See, the great lie is that I can just do whatever I want as a single person and then get married and tomorrow act like I'm a married person. It doesn't quite work that way. So I want to explore this image of foxes in the vineyard. The idea that there are issues that spoil a relationship or issues that prevent a relationship from being fruitful. Now, before we get to practical, like sort of specific foxes, I want to, I want to talk about why are relationships hard to begin with? Why are they so much work? Why in this epic poem, uh, epic love poem, do you have to have a section that talks about catching the foxes that could ruin our vineyard? Why? Go to Genesis chapter one. Now, if you're annoyed, with how much we're in Genesis, it's only going to get worse. Genesis chapter 1. Now, these are passages we've looked at already in our conversation, but, but there are things here that we skip over and I want to come back to, circle around, and, and draw your attention to because we're asking the question, why are relationships tough? Why do foxes exist? Not in the literal sense, but in the relational sense, right? Because there's a sense in which um, if you've spent any time around the opposite sex, you realize, holy cow, this is a lot of work. And, and, and we want to talk about why that is. So, Genesis chapter 1. Put your thinking caps on for the next 15 minutes. There's a lot of Hebrew we're going to be doing. Verse 26, then God said, let us make mankind. Now, mankind is an unfortunate translation here because it's just generic. The word is Adam. Okay, it just means human beings. Let us make human beings in our image and in our likeness, so they may what? Rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, livestock, wild animals, over all the creatures that move along the ground. Now, the words image and likeness, we've talked about this before, but just to remind you, the words image and likeness have to do with, in the ancient Near East, if you were a king or a ruler and you had a large territory, 
what you would do is you would make images and likenesses of yourself in the form of statues, and you would put them around your territory saying that you were sovereign over it. An image or a likeness in the ancient Near East was a way of saying this, is, this territory belongs to this ruler, okay? So the idea is that human beings were to be God's image and likeness over the whole earth as examples, as images that this in fact the whole thing belonged to God. That's the idea. In the same way an ancient Near Eastern ruler would have images and statues of himself over a territory, God has images of himself over a territory. And the idea is that we were made in God's image to rule. Now rule, as we joke all the time, or not so joke, but jokingly say, rule doesn't mean strip, mine, and pollute. Rule means partner with God in the administration and governorship over the created world. That's the idea. So God creates men and women in his image, in his likeness. Why? So they may rule. So image and likeness are royal words. Ruling is a royal word. The idea is we reflect God's kingship over the earth. That's the idea. And there's work for us to do. Notice, verse 27, God created mankind, humanity, in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. The idea is that man by himself or woman by herself, they're each image bearers, but the full image, both male and female, are needed to reflect the full image of God. That's the idea. There's no subordination, not a hint of inferiority. It is two people created in the image of God, co-equal, ontologically uh, identical in terms of their value and worth before God. And that, that's a big word that I just threw out there. Now, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. So the first command, the rabbis always pointed out, there are 613 commands in the Old Testament. The first one is, be fertile. Have children. And the way God arranged for children to be made turns out to be really awesome. So be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth, subdue it, rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, over every living creature that moves along the ground. Now jump over to chapter two. Chapter one is the wide angle lens of the creation story. Chapter two zeroes in on the creation of the man and the woman specifically. And again, as always, if you don't buy uh, this stuff, I'm so glad you're here. There are points to be made out of it. We can have the whether or not Genesis is literal conversation some other time. But just set that aside and listen because there are some things here, even if you don't buy it, I, that are worth kind of hearing and wrestling with. So in Genesis 1, male, female, both reflect God's image, needed to reflect God's image, and they're given work to do, to be fruitful and multiply, to fill the earth and to rule it in a way that brings glory and honor to God and benefits creation itself. Now in chapter two, we meet, uh, we meet the man. Verse seven, then the Lord God formed a man. Now here, the word for man is Adam or Adam. God, God formed a man and Adam from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living being. Now look at me. The word for ground or earth is the word Adama. The word for man is the word Adam. Do you see the connection? 
The man was formed from the ground, so he's named after the ground. The Adam came from the Adama. Naming in the ancient Near East was an expression of connection, that somehow the man was going to be connected to the ground in some way, and in some way find meaning, maybe purpose, significance, identity in his relationship to the ground. And sure enough, the first commandments given the man are take care of the garden, work it, and so on. So the man is named from the ground. The Adam is named after the Adama. Now there, there's relevance coming. Jump down to verse 18. More instructions given to the man. And then the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be what? Now it's interesting. The man had all of God that a human being could have, right? There's no sin, no shame, no nothing. It's him and God and the animals. And God says, it's not good that the guy's alone. Which means, evidently, that God made us to actually need each other. So anytime somebody tells you, well, all you need is God, well, that's true, but the God who's the only one you need also tells you you need other people too. So there's a sense in which, and the not good line stands in stark contrast uh, to all of the times in chapter one that God says, it was good, it was good, it was good, and God saw it, it was good, it was good, it was good, and here's the only thing that's not good. It's not good that the man is alone. So... I will make a helper suitable for him. Now, English is horrible. Okay, that sounds like he needs a secretary. <laughs> right? I mean, it sounds, it, I mean, we hear that and we go, really? Now, suitable helper is two words in Hebrew. Ezer connecto. Okay, the word ezer means ally or helper. And Ezer is used of God helping Israel all over the Old Testament. So if you want to say that God is somehow subordinated to humanity because he's a helper, that's the only way you can say that woman is somehow subordinated to man as a helper. There is no trace of that in the word. The word is used of God as he is an ally to Israel. So that's what it means to be an Ezer. It's a very, very strong word. Konegdo is a word that means, and, and st stick with me, it means a like opposite. It means a corresponding counterpart. It means something that is alike enough, but opposite enough, something else. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's almost a contradictory word. It, it, it's, it's, I can't think of a better example than this, so forgive me. It's like, it's like two puzzle pieces. They have to be alike enough to be, belong to the same puzzle, but they have to be different enough to fit together. Does that make sense? So this is what, that's the image, is, is the woman and the man, they're alike opposites. They're both made in God's image, but she's a counterpart, and she's equal to. And so the idea isn't that God says, looks at the man and says, man, that dude needs an administrative assistant. Or that, that guy just needs an outlet for sexual urges or something. No, seriously. I mean, there, we, the, the old King James has this help meet. And, and there is a, train, there's a, a line of thinking um, in Christian circles that makes this a subordinating thing. And that's just not in the Hebrew. The Hebrew is very, very strong about who this person is and how this person fits with the Adam. 
Now, jump down if you would, verse 21. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep, and while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's what? Ribs. Now, I know, if you're here, you're, you're like a biology major, you're going, I don't think so. The Hebrew here is that it's not rib, it's actually side. Now think about the imagery. God took the man's side. Not, not head, not feet, but side. What does that connotate? Equal, right? Equal. So, whether you buy like it's a rib or not, the image is unbelievably powerful. And in a patriarchal culture in which this was written, this kind of thing wasn't said. That human beings were both made in God's image and male and female reflected God's image together. And so you have now the woman. What was the man made from? The dirt. What was the woman made from? The man. Notice Adam picks up on this. Verse 23, when he sees the woman, the man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. Now, he's not naming her here. He's designating a category for her. In other words, she's like him, but different. So in Hebrew, pay attention, she says, she shall be called Isha, woman, because she was taken out of Ish, man. So, look at me. The man was named in relationship to the ground. The woman was named, not a proper name yet. Adam doesn't even have a proper name yet. Adam becomes his formal name later in the story, but right now it's just generic for man. The Adam was named in relationship to the ground. The Ish, Isha, was, re, was named in relationship to the Ish, the man, all right? Now, what this sets up is the following idea, that there was some connection the man was to have to the ground, and there was some connection the man and the woman were to share together, okay? Are you with me on this? Now, how long does this beautiful picture last? Two chapters, <laughs> right? It ends with, they were naked and unashamed, Right, a beautiful picture of intimacy with God and each other. We met the talking snake last week, right? And the red tornado of death. <laughs> I want, uh, so, so review the red tornado if you need to, but I want to draw your attention to what God does in response to the disobedience of our first parents. Flip over to Genesis 3. This will connect to foxes in about 10 minutes. <laughs> Okay, chapter 3, verse 16. These are judgments given by God to the serpent, to the woman, and then to the man. And I want you to notice, these are not random. All right, this is, this is a huge point coming. To the woman, God said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. Why? I mean, that's kind of random. Right? You've disobeyed, so childbearing is going to be difficult now. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Ooh, that sounds horrible. Now, think about what he's saying here, okay? First thing, I will frustrate, I will, I will make your pains in childbearing 
um, difficult. I will increase them. What was the first command given to the man and the woman? To fill the earth. The woman was the vessel through whom the earth would be filled, right? She carries the child, gives birth to the child. So God frustrates the woman's ability to do that by making childbearing painful. The woman was named after the man, right? Isha and Ish. So God then curses the male-female relationship. It says your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. You have to understand that's life now in a fallen world. That wasn't God's design. The word desire in Hebrew doesn't mean sexual desire. I wish it did. The word means, the word is a power word that's used in Genesis 4 of Cain's, uh, of sin's desire to master or control Cain. So here's the idea. The wife now, the woman, will have the desire to master or control her husband, but the husband will want to rule over her. So instead of two equals partnering with each other in the accomplishment of God's purposes on the earth, what do you have instead? You have a power struggle. You have foxes in the vineyard, right? Now, you may be thinking, why would God do that? See, we read chapter 3 and we think, oh, isn't that random that God would like Curse the what, childbearing, really? Pain, really? I mean, we have epidurals. What's the big deal? The writer is, and that's only said by guys, okay? That last line. But the writer is telling us that God was very strategic in his judgments. Notice how he curses the man. Verse 17. Cursed is the what? The ground because of you. Painful toil now will be your lot in producing food to eat. So, the man and the woman, right? The man was named after the ground, made to find, in some way, meaning, purpose, significance from his relationship to the ground. The woman was made from the man, meant to find, in some way, meaning, purpose, identity, in a relationship with the man. So what's God do in response to sin? He frustrates the very impulses he gave them. Do you see that? Yes? Why? Now, this is a whole other talk we could give. But short answer is because he was being merciful. What do you do with rebellious, sinful creatures? You frustrate life so that life can't work apart from him. In other words, for men and women, they were, there'll be no way they'll ever find satisfaction in their work. Even though work wasn't a consequence of the fall, it's never enough. You never get enough awards. You never make enough money. You never, there, there's never an enoughness in what we do. That's God's curse. And for male and female relationships, there's never, and, and, and maybe there is. I mean, maybe there is the perfect couple out there that never argues, that never hurts each other, that never disappoints each other. I haven't met them. Perhaps if Jesus had gotten married, that would have, I, I don't know. She would have still been a sinner, I guess. I don't know. But even the best of our marriages, the amount of work you have to do to get there. Why? Because anyone tempted to find their ultimate meaning, purpose, and significance in relationships will now 
be forced to look elsewhere. Do you see what God has done? Now, agree or disagree, this isn't central to our point, but I just want to say, the way, I mean, think about it. If money really satisfied, we'd stop there. If pleasure just really satisfied, we'd stop there. See, how many people do you know that came to Jesus when life was glorious? You know? No, I meet people all the time. Well, <laughs> I was broken and I needed healing. I was sinful. I needed saving. I mean, it's you come to your emptiness. You come to your darkness. You come to the recognition that you need help. And so I think God designed life to be frustrating. Now, that doesn't mean every fight comes from him. I'm not saying that. We're, we're all guilty. But do you see the point I think the writer's making? Instead of the naked and unashamed intimacy between men and women in the fall now, the woman's desire will be, and however this plays out, to control and master, and the man's desire will be to rule. So now it's a power struggle. And couples will tell you, what do they fight about most? Money and sex. Why? Because those are power issues. So when we talk about foxes in the vineyard, I want to just give you a perspective about why there are foxes at all and why you have to fight to have a good relationship. Go to Ephesians chapter five. One last point, then we'll back to foxes. Are you guys out there? Okay. I feel, you know, I feel like there are landmines everywhere. <laughs> Ephesians chapter five. Now, if you've been with us, remember week number two, we talked about this really... <laughs> at times abused and misunderstood passage, right? Wives, submit to your husbands. And we made a couple of really big points. Number one, the general admonition in chapter five, chapter five, verse one says, be imitators of God. So there's your big, like, overarching command. Then there's another command in chapter five that says, do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. Well, what's it mean to be filled with the Spirit? Well, there are five things that happen when you're filled with the Spirit. Singing, making music. The last one is that you submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And in Greek, which English doesn't pick up very well, in Greek, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, comma, husbands do this, or excuse me, wives do this to your husbands. So no one can ever rip verse 22 out without referencing verse 21. So, Paul just simply says, as he says everywhere else, the natural order of your living should be placing, this is what submit means, to be voluntarily placing the interests of other people ahead of your own, comma, wives do this to your husbands. Okay? That's what it means. And if you remember, right, if, if this is new to you, go back and listen to it from a couple of weeks ago. It's really, really important you understand. And Paul goes on says, for the husband is the head of the wife, verse 23, Ephesians 5. The husband is the head of the wife as Christ is head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so wives should submit to their husbands in everything. And we hear that in America in cringe. We think that means be doormats, be subservient, right? And, and guys, in their quest to rule, will pull this passage out and, and use it in ways that are abusive and domineering and totally against the thread of what Paul was saying. Because remember, nobody in the first century would have thought this was revolutionary. What would have been considered revolutionary was that Paul addressed husbands. That's the thing that would have been revolutionary. Husbands, 
Love your wives just as Christ of the church. And what? Gave himself up for her. So, husbands are head of the wives. Awesome. Sweet. Right? It validates my desire to rule. I'm a benevolent dictator. Awesome. Well, what's headship mean? The way Christ loved the church. Oh. What's that mean? And gave himself up for her. Oh. See, we have a lot of folks that want the title head of the house, but nobody wants the job description. Right? And dudes, I hate to be giving up our secrets. But in a fallen world, our natural desire is to want to rule. And what does God call us to instead? To serve. And in a fallen world, ladies, our natural desire is to want to master and control. What does Paul call us to instead? Submit. And he uses an interesting synonym. Go to verse 33. He says, however, each one of you must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Now, do you see what Paul's done? The natural sinful inclination is a power struggle, right? To master and to rule. Now, in Christ, embody Jesus' relationship with his church. Guys, instead of ruling, serve. And ladies, instead of trying to master, respect and submit. Voluntarily. What do you have here? You have the reversal of Genesis 3. You don't have a manifesto against women. It's quite the opposite. What you have is male-female relationships to be transformed so that the authority of the guy is found in his sacrifice. What's that mean? It means, gentlemen, that we use our time, our energy, our passion, our money and give that for the benefit of our wife and children. It doesn't mean just dying when it's glorious. It means dying when it's not glorious. It means when you say yes to husbanding and fatherhood, you're saying yes to self-denial and sacrifice. And how opposite is that from our culture's understanding? For so many, marriage is just a way to extend adolescence. Mom took care of me, wife takes care of me. And wives, aren't you willing, right? I mean, how many women marry the guy they could be rather than the guy they are? So you have this constant war of a wife saying, yeah, but, yeah, but, fix, 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 and a dude resenting and saying, you know what, I have a mom, I don't need another one. But yet I do. I mean, it's the weirdest thing. Am I just speaking to anybody else here? Or am I alone? <laughs> and, and the goal isn't to beat up on dudes, but we've lost any sense of what it means to be masculine and married. So we either, we, we, we either are absent, we're cowardly, we don't fight, we just back away, and we live parallel lives. And what you have instead is you have the invitation to give yourself wholly to someone who isn't worth it, by the way, right? I mean, that's a sinner, and you're going to find that out soon enough, and you're not, there comes a moment, I mean, let me try it a different way. 
What's love? What is it? What is it? Giving yourself? Absolutely. Is it, is it primarily a feeling in the scriptures? No. God, so God commands the husband, love your wives. He's not saying feel romantic towards your wives. He's not saying have warm fuzzies towards your wives. Love is a verb. Do you understand this? The most tragic illusion that young folks, you understand, is that there is something called love that you fall in and out of. That's not love. That's lust, infatuation, that's endorphins, that's pizza. I mean, that, that isn't love. I'm serious. Love isn't an emotion. It's a commitment to act for the welfare of another person. You only love somebody when you act for their welfare. So when the Bible says, husbands love your wives, he's not saying, God can't command emotions like, hey, feel in love all the time, because you're not gonna. Instead, the command is, give yourself for the benefit of your wives, for that's what love is. Now think about how significant that is. In the Bible, you fall in love after you're married, not before. Isn't that weird? You don't get married for love. You get married for other reasons, and then you pray that you grow in love once you're married. We're going to go to war against the idea that there's this one, the one, this soulmate. You don't have a soulmate out there, okay? Single folks, you don't. What you have are sinners out there. And ladies, sorry. I mean, I hate to beat up on the Hollywood fiction, but it ironically, such a high view of soulmate keeps people from getting married because they're constantly looking for the one. And by the one they mean, the one that will never ask them to change, the one they'll never have to say sorry to, the one that they'll never fight with, the one that won't grow fat, the one that won't ever ask anything of them. That's what they mean by the one. And that person doesn't exist. The person that does exist, though, is an alike opposite that God will use to grow you in such profound ways that your marriage, if you let it, ends up looking a lot like the good news of Jesus. Now, are you with me on this point? Agree or disagree? It's totally cool. But you see how crazy we are in the way that we view this. We think marriage is fundamentally about self-fulfillment. And then you marry, get married and realize, oh, it's about self-denial. And it's about loving another sinful person the way that God loves me as a sinful person. Wow. So sometimes it's just easier to stay single, or so we think. Now, back to foxes. Go, go back to Song of, Song, Song of Songs. It's coming. Are you guys out there? Yeah, okay. I don't buy it. Forced. Forced. <laughs> and like we've said, I feel so ill-equipped to talk about some of this stuff. I mean, it's not like I've got it all figured out. I mean, right before I came up on stage, I had to call my wife and apologize. Seriously. 
You know, and, and the way I like to apologize, here's how I like to apologize. Honey, yes, I was wrong, but here's what you did that totally made my reaction <laughs> fine. Now, let's talk about foxes. We get, we get two hints of foxes in their relationship. So, here's where we've been. Hey, why are there foxes in a relationship? Why is love difficult? Why is it hard? Well, part of the reason it's hard is because it's dealing with two fallen human beings, sure. But part of the reason it's hard, too, is because God, I believe, out of mercy, has frustrated self-interested people so that everything they look to to find meaning, purpose, and identity will ultimately let them down to drive them back to him as an act of mercy. That's what I think. So I think you have to work. If you're looking for a relationship, the whole diatribe about love was designed to say if you're looking for a relationship that's easy, you won't ever find one. Okay, because they're all going to be hard. Now, there's better kinds of hard and there's worse kinds of hard, right? But the issue can't be I'm looking for perfection and easy. Because no matter how in love you are on your wedding day, there'll come a point in your marriage where you will go, what have I done? Right? Married folks, can I get an amen? And that is a normal part. When you outgrow the endorphins, and you realize, I am called to act loving even when I don't feel loving. Wow. Now you're getting close to gospel. Now you're getting close to imitating this Jesus. When you're willing to pour yourself out even if you don't want to. So, she gives us a couple examples of foxes in the relationship. I love this, verse 16. My beloved is mine and I am his, totally equal. He browses among the lilies until the day breaks and the shadows flee. That's all night long. Turn, my beloved, and be like a gazelle or like a young stag on the rugged hills. I think she's saying, let's go for a cup of coffee, don't you? <laughs> now, then she shares a fear that she has. She says, all night long in my bed, I looked for the one my heart loves. I looked for him but did not find him. I will get up now, go about the city through its streets and squares. I will search for the one my heart loves. So I looked for him, but did not find him. The watchmen found me as they made their rounds in the city. Have you seen the one my heart loves, she says? Scarcely had I passed them when I found the one my heart loves. I held him and would not let him go until I brought him to my mother's house, to the room of the one who conceived me, which is kind of weird. Daughters of Jerusalem, I charge you. By the gazelles and does of the field, do not arouse or awaken love until it desires. In other words, we get a glimpse into her fear that she'll be what? Abandoned. Right? The fear of, and, and true love is always risky. It always demands, I mean, when you put yourself out there, I mean, you think asking somebody on a date is hard. Right? I mean, when you do the bended knee and get the ring out, you know, I only did it once I was sure the answer was yes. I wouldn't even, I wouldn't even, if there was any question, I wasn't going to ask her to marry me, right? And so, so I, you know, I bribed her and made promises, and it was a yes. But all that is to say, <laughs> the risk doesn't stop, because the longer you're married, the, the person that can hurt you most in the world 
is your spouse. I mean, my wife and I, we know the tender spots. I can just say a phrase and zero in on a deep wound that she has. She can just give me a look that provokes all of this junk. So it's not like fear goes away when you find the one you're married to. So one of the foxes is fear. You're continually trusting because love is a commitment. It's an expression of trust. And then notice another fox. This is awesome that this is in here. Go to chapter 5, verse 2. I slept, she says, but my heart was awake. So what's she doing? I slept, but my heart was awake. What is she doing here? I'm going to say dreaming. Evidently, a thousand or so people disagree. (laughs) Listen, my beloved was knocking. Open to me, my sister, my darling, my love, my flawless one. My head is drenched with dew, my hair with the dampness of the night. He knocking at her door. and We don't know exactly what the image is, but evidently he'd been out working all night. Notice what she says. I have taken off my robe. Must I put it on again? I have washed my feet. Must I soil them again? My beloved thrust his hand through the latch opening. My heart began to pound for him. I arose to open for my beloved and my hands dripped with myrrh, my fingers with flowing myrrh on the handles of the bolt. I opened for my beloved, but my beloved had what? Left. Oh my goodness, you want to know what one of the main foxes? Honey, you want to do this? And she says, not tonight. I have three kids. I have a headache. I've taken off my shoes. Must I soil my feet again? I've taken off my robe. I mean, it's brilliant that in this 3,000-year-old love document, you not only have the heights of sexual glory and young stags on rugged hills, what you have is a dude who's been working all night saying, hey, honey, and her saying, not really. (laughs) Right? I mean, I love that this is in here. 